And there's risk associated with any tool, whether it's a, you know, a power saw, an automobile, what have you. Um, fire, right, is hugely powerful, but when domesticated, it can do amazing things. And so I do think that we have seen a much broader portion of the population educated on the risks as well as the potential rewards associated with these tools. And that's super exciting as I look out further into the future. You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to IBKR Podcasts. My name is Steve Sostick. I'm your host. I'm the Chief Strategist at Interactive Brokers. With me today is my guest, Kevin Davitt, Head of Index Options Content at NASDAQ. Um, and it's a real pleasure to have Kevin joining me today. Um, he and I've interacted you know, via email, via Twitter, via social media several times. It's actually the first time I'm, I'm meeting you. Well, not exactly in person. We're, we're, we're remote, but, um, but, you know, as it were, uh, meeting you face to face somewhat. Um, before we launch into the program, Kevin, why don't you introduce yourself to the, to the audience? Sure. I'd love to. And, and I appreciate this opportunity to be in uh, 2D with you. <laughs> so as you mentioned, uh, in my current role, I am head of index option content at NASDAQ. Um, prior to this, I spent years doing fairly similar work at SIBO. So uh, a different exchange, but in the industry and I started in this business many moons ago out of college. Um, I started with a proprietary trading firm based in Chicago, but with a presence on all four exchanges. At that point in time, uh, I was a market maker and made markets in equity options, index options, commodity futures and options. So I've seen this business from a variety of different ways, but in my current situation. I focus on business development and obviously content creation with an emphasis on NASDAQ products. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. And if nothing else, it's, a, it's nice to get a reminder of the quaint days of four exchanges. Um, you know, now we've we've squared that. Um, so, um, you know, I guess what I wanted to start with was was an overview of the options industry from your point of view, particularly, you know, having having uh, spent considerable time at, at, you know, two of the two of the biggest exchange families that we have. How do you view the state of the options industry right now? Sure. I'd love to expound on that a little bit. And there there certainly has been a lot of hoopla around or surrounding options over the past couple of years and and do not misconstrue this it is super exciting and we'll touch on that a bit but what i find at least here and now most compelling is that volume numbers remain very high despite the fact that u.s markets u.s equity markets have reversed course in a meaningful way which historically is somewhat unusual so if you look back there have been spikes in volume tied to what I would call significant market events like I'm old enough to remember the dot-com bust, global financial crisis, and more recently, the, the early stages of the COVID pandemic. But typically, the tide goes out after a couple months of big volumes. 
but that's not been the case this year. And so I'm going to give that a little bit more, more color, hopefully. So Steve, as you know, like any metric, it's going to de depend on where you measure from. So your, your base now on a year over year base, option volumes increased 50% in 2020. So that's relative to 2019. There was another 30% year over year growth between 2020 and 2021. And this year, so through August, we are on pace to be roughly in line with 2021 numbers this year. So the growth, particularly for a fairly mature uh, industry, is pretty, pretty outstanding. Um, now, going back to 2019, 2020, the tide was rising across the exchange landscape and in the early stages of the pandemic, there was a big pickup in primarily institutional volume, and that volume was centered uh, in large part on index options. So let's understand a little bit why that might be, and then move toward uh, very, very much present day. So as you know, and many of your audience likely knows, institutions generally manage huge sums of money. Most of them, most of those institutions now have managers that understand options, that includes index options, and they use them typically to reduce risk, potentially increase yield, or create some desired range of potential outcomes. So when you have a situation like markets movement in February and March of 2020, correlations increase. This is something you've written well about in the past. Now, in more typical markets, correlations will vary depending on your sector, uh, another a, a variety of other influencing factors. But we, when you get those, what I would term baby out with the bathwater type markets, like we saw in early 2020, money managers typically look to the most efficient way to insulate themselves in deep, liquid, typically broad-based index products. So you saw a big pickup in NDX volume or XND, which is a smaller notional tracker for the NASDAQ 100, as opposed to Apple options or Microsoft options or Tesla. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, oh, absolutely. If, if I'm trying to manage a, a big a big institutional exposure, um, I, I would much rather try to do it using a handful of products, a handful of trades rather than, you know, uh, 50 or 100 or whatever is necessary. So so clearly you get much more, uh, I, I hate to say bang for the buck because that's not the right way of putting it, but it, it's, if you're hedging, if you're hedging an event for a port, for a large portfolio, it's just simply easier to use um, either your major indices or, you know, or your ETFs that replicate them. That That's absolutely correct. That's a type of behavior that we have noticed throughout these sort of very high correlation markets where index options become that go-to hedging or exposure vehicle. Now, after that, we had a confluence of events that have been well covered that bolstered the individual equity option volume. So you had a huge portion of the public working from home. You had unprecedented monetary and fiscal stimulus, another thing that you've written about. 
So on the monetary side, I'm referencing the Federal Reserve lowering the Fed funds rate. So they're effectively making money and leverage cheaper. They, they went so far as to expand their balance sheet by going into the public markets and buying assets. And that almost certainly helps stabilize markets during a time of considerable uncertainty. Now, as a byproduct, it also kind of incentivized risk-taking. Now, if return on debt instruments like U.S. Treasuries are less than 1%, just picking kind of a, a low number, capital is likely going to flow to areas where there's the potential for better returns. Then on the, the government side, there was huge fiscal stimulus in the form of direct payments, again, stabilizing uh, from, from an employment standpoint, from an income standpoint, but risk-taking was incentivized and higher levels of disposable income arguably led to some of the surge in individual equity options that much has been made about. And I'm not going to rehash that. Yeah. What, one thing, I also, sorry, yeah, one, sure. th one thing I was going to add here is I, I hate to say it because I really, as, as someone who's been a long time advocate of options as, as a hedging vehicle, as a strategic investment, as an income stream, people Basically, they were adopted by gamblers with a gambling mentality. There was no sports for a while. This was the only game in town. The payoff is very similar to a sports bet where, you know, you 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 put out a fixed amount of money for a leveraged return. And on top of it, to some people, uh, they were playing with what I would call house money. Government mm -hmm. sent you a check. This this money, can, you know, if let me be very clear, if you if you're in poor financial straits and, and, and hindered by by COVID, et, et cetera, that money was a that money was a lifeline. If you continue to be gainfully employed, except working from home under less supervision, well, that could be somewhat, you know, that could be kind of a little bit of mad money. And I think that mentality um, gave us not only help help the rise in options, but um, Brought along the brought along the, the the flood into cryptocurrencies. Brought along the flood into meme stocks. Um, I'm not going to say it encouraged the most extreme risk taking behavior, but it certainly enabled it. Sorry, I didn't mean to I, interrupt. No, I I think that point of clarification really shines a light on a period that was unprecedented. Um, I, I like thinking about historical analogs and trying to put these things in context, but quite frankly, it'd be impossible to, to draw an appropriate analogy for what we saw in terms of market behavior, government interventions, and the employment situation for the better part of the past two, two and a half years. And that has impacted the options industry across the board, it arguably continues to. But the fact that you pointed out a handful of, I'm going to call them niche markets or, or markets within the overall capital market um, uh, umbrella, so cryptos or your meme names, um, generally higher volatility assets, What's interesting to me is the fact that you continue to see relatively strong volumes. Now, they'll ebb and flow to different corners of the market, particularly in 2022, but the overall volume numbers have not, through eight months of the year, dropped off in 2022. I think that's a testament 
to broader understanding of how these tools work, right? That's very different than back in 2000 or even in 2008 where there were huge swings. I think people genuinely understand like the risk reward dynamic when you're buying options, your risk is limited to, to what you've paid for it and you're getting leveraged exposure. And I think there's a much greater understanding of the, the risk mitigation approaches um, that have been in some cases rewarded this year. And that's exciting, not not just because to a certain extent I, I work and advocate for the responsible use of these tools. Me too, but by because the way. <laughs> I, I, I know it, it's music to our ears, but when more, right, you, you have tools generally, and there's risk associated with any tool, whether it's a, you know, a power saw, an automobile, what have you, um, fire, right, is hugely powerful, but when domesticated, it can do amazing things. And so I do think that we have seen a much broader portion of the population educated on the risks as well as the potential rewards associated with these tools. And that's super exciting as I look out further into the future. Oh, me too as well. I think I think that I fully agree with the idea that people have moved away from options strictly as a vehicle for speculation and realize the the ancillary uses, which which arguably are why they exist. They weren't they they, they weren't they didn't come into existence as a means of speculation. They came in as a means of as a means of hedging and or income, et cetera. Um, and so it's nice to see that, that that it's not only institutions using those strategies. It is retail, well, individuals as well mm -hmm. and smaller institutions. I think that's I, I think that's wonderful. Um, and I think that's what you know, the, I, I think the fact that we're running at levels comparable to last year, which are, you know, 50% and then 30% sequentially higher to maintain that um, here is, is I agree. I think we all, we all get a little bit of a pat on the back here uh, about, I'd like to think that you and I individually and our organizations collectively played some role in, in, in educating users about the benefits. So moving on a little bit, you, to the extent you can compare and contrast the offerings of the SIBO versus versus NASDAQ. I mean, the simplest thing is SIBO is the home of the S&P complex and NASDAQ, of mm -hmm. course, is the home of of the, I'm going to call it the NDX complex. But mm -hmm. you, you can flesh that out a bit more than I can, certainly. Yeah. So uh, I, I think it's an interesting question and I look forward to kind of addressing that. But just to be clear, I think I have perhaps a unique perspective because I traded on both uh, the SIBO floor as well as the PhilX options floor, which is now part of the NASDAQ family of exchanges. So I've been a member of both exchanges and I'm also fortunate to have worked for both exchanges over the past decade or so. So I just want to be clear that this is just my perspective and it's more rooted in the evolution of the, the broader industry. So give that a little context. SIBO, as you, you kind of alluded to, developed as a floor-based options exchange. They were the first options exchange that, that was launched in 1973 as part of the Chicago Board of Trade. SIBO gained a foothold in the equities business with their BATS merger about six years ago. 
That also changed their emphasis, SIBO's emphasis on technology and the underlying platform that matches buyers to sellers, which to this day is the primary exchange function. Now, contrasting that, NASDAQ developed as a kind of technology-first equities exchange. So it's always been electronic, NASDAQ, and that was revolutionary at the time. NASDAQ moved into the options market in a big way with their acquisition of the ISE and the Philex at two different points in time. Now, as I kind of alluded to, the Philex was and is a huge player in the options business with both a trading floor and an electronic marketplace. The ISE was the first fully electronic options marketplace. I remember very much so in the early 2000s when, uh, as we mentioned at the outset, there were four floor-based exchanges. ISE came along and changed the game, right? Now, NASDAQ and SIBO were launched at essentially, if you're you're given a long time frame here, essentially the same time. So NASDAQ, 1971, first electronic stock market, SIBO, 1973. So early 70s, but in very different markets with a different focus. So electronic trading versus floor trading. Now in time, they have come to resemble one another through acquisitions and the evolution that that's transpired in both the equities and U.S. option markets. They both now have global reach. NASDAQ, for example, is the, the dominant marketplace in the Nordics. Um, I visited there this year, and <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. Nice. Uh, and now just kind of wrapping up in my current role, NASDAQ is and is clearly invested in growing in their index options offering. Historically, SIBO has been the leader in index options, but NASDAQ is in an enviable position because they control the IP, the intellectual property for the NASDAQ indices and the index options on them. SIBO works with Dow Jones S&P on the index side, and then they control the options business. So that's kind of idiosyncratic and nuanced, but I think it's worth pointing out. So I will work in a capacity that you do to educate clients on understanding use cases. The nuances associated with index options our more recent VOLQ offering. And just as a final kind of editorial point, when I joined the NASDAQ index options team earlier this year, it was explained to me, so this smaller group, operates like uh, like a startup or with a startup mentality that's part of a much larger technology company. And I have very much found that to be the case. And it's a dynamic that works well for me. Um, now, we all have our focus, but there's also an opportunity in, in this index options group to nearly any to do nearly anything if you can make a business case for it. And I really, really love that as opposed to kind of being expected to stay in your lane in more mature situations. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, quite, quite a bit. I mean, I, I've, I, I've dealt with several of your colleagues um, over the past few years, um, you know, in edu in various um, educational settings, trade talks uh, where we've talked about 
VolQ and 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 the other and the other intellectual property that you guys are working on. It is interesting because that is really it, to me it's fascinating that Nasdaq kept that software first mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, the SIBO I think had to learn it. I mean I, I I I'll date myself a bit here and say that I was I remember making markets on Nasdaq back you know back in the day when when people would yell at you over the phone you know so it was electronic quoting but it was still trading by trading very old school and I remember and I do also remember sneaking into the SIBO sort of under the cover as they were trying to get their hybrid system up and running um which ended up they realized, you know, perhaps bats had a better had a better thing going, um, but that was, you know, that was when that was that was their catch up to ISE. So, um, you know, it's it's interesting to have all that perspective, and it's very useful to keep that in mind. I think I think that um, when you put it that way, I hadn't realized, you know, how much the DNA of the original old um, exchange families still pervade still pervade yeah. their way of doing business. And and how would it not, right? That's no knock on either strands of DNA, right? No. But it does to this day influence the business, the way they operate, um, despite the sort of uh, aggregation that we've seen and the, the, the parallels as far as being technology driven in both the equities and options markets. It's, it's super interesting. So- I guess now that you've mentioned the you know sort of the proprietary stuff, tell us a little bit about why why someone should be utilizing Nasdaq's suite of products. We 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 referenced VolQ, but you could do better than I can. Um, you know, another thing that that I I've been working on is um, I recently did a trade talk based on some of the work I did. You know that effectively, if if you're a speculator, and I know this is completely the opposite of what we talked about with education, but if you're a speculator, QQQ is generally the better way to speculate, or in many ways, the better way to hedge, because it correlates, depending on how you want to look at, you know, there's, there's so many different ways you can look at correlation, but almost any way you slice it, the, the R squared is, is roughly 0.9 or more. And, you know, which is very high, except, except at DX, is more volatile than than SPX. So I'd like your take on some of these themes because I know I've talked about them with your people. I want I want I want you to talk about them with me. Sure, I'd love to. Just to uh, make sure that we're we're talking about the same thing. When you run those correlation numbers, you're talking about correlation between the Nasdaq 100. And the S and P five hundred, correct? Correct. Yes, I use okay. I, I used the shorthand, but thank you for clarifying. Yeah, sure. Um, one of the one of the things that I point out often in client facing situations, and to a certain extent with the written word, is the fact that I think increasingly portfolios, whether they're institutional or individual investors managing their retirement or discretionary income, those portfolios more often resemble the NASDAQ 100 or the QQQs than the S&P 500. Now, don't get me wrong, if you have big interest in financials or real estate or energy or something like that, then the S&P is probably going to have a higher degree of correlation. But like like you pointed out in your research, 
the correlation between the two indices is quite high. And as such, there can be compelling reasons to choose NASDAQ index options as your hedging vehicle or as your tool for exposure. So my team obviously works to increase awareness and understanding around those. So I, I'd point out that you have the NDX, which with a, a NASDAQ 100 around 12,000 right now, the notional value given the, the leveraged tool that we're talking about of one option is $1.2 million. So that's significant and it prices out uh, a huge swath of the investing public. One of on the, the on the other hand, if seen, I, if I can interrupt for one second, on the sure. other hand, that is why large institutions gravitate toward big index options because if I've got if if I'm talking about hundreds of millions under management, if I want to hedge that, NDX options become an efficient tool for doing so. Sorry, but just I just wanted to bring that back. D in. Don't be sorry. That that's really important to understand. You know, you go back historically in derivatives were created, continue to be used as tools for uh, commercials on the commodity side and institutions to manage risk. But as the industry's grown, the use cases for smaller products has grown. And that's a trend that continues to to this day. Um, I sometimes make the analogy of like the the NDX product is is like an offering at Costco, right? Like <laughs> not everybody needs that that huge thing of pretzels. But if you're putting it in the office or whatever, there's a use case for it. And that's kind of <laughs> like the institutional use of a, of a big product. But like if I'm getting a snack for my soon to be eight year old, we're going to a convenience store and getting the appropriate size. Right. So not that he would take any issue with the with the big one. He'd probably crush that, too. Um, so there are there are, are those kind of convenience store size products, particularly in the form of XND, which is one one hundredth the size of the the full Nasdaq. Now, the notional value, there is a difference between QQQ and XND. Um, QQQ is actually a little bit bigger. So this is a trend that we see going on, but pointing out that index options, and I'm sure a huge percentage of your audience knows this already, but index options, there are idiosyncratic differences between an index option like XND and QQQ. I'll point them out really briefly for, for those that this might Please. be new to. Index options cash settle at expiration, whereas those ETF options physically deliver. What does that mean? Well, uh, at expiration, an XND or an NDX option will simply settle to cash in your account based on the value of that option at expiration. Um, whereas if I have an in the money QQQ call option, let's say, yep. I need to uh, have sufficient funds in my account to cover the purchase of 100 shares of QQQ at the strike price at expiration. Um, and that can be a big difference. Now, some people like to focus their attention on options. They want to manage an options portfolio. Other people look to mix underlyings and, and options. And so the uh, breadth of, of offerings is appropriate and there's huge volume in, in all the products as a result of that. 
So understanding that difference in settlement is key. It's, second, let, me, let me let me just let me just sorry before before I interrupt your second point. Let me finish this part. The the difference with index options are when they expire, you're done. You either made, you lost, you owe the money, you receive the money. Those, by the way, typically expire on Friday morning, not Friday after. Well, the more they're AM expiration, not not PM expiration, typically. But the key is you don't find yourself needing either to hedge or to manage a position Monday morning. I'm, I'm, I'm talking Friday expirations here, but um, but so that's it. You're done, and that's that's another reason why cash settled index options are very popular as a hedging tool with institutions because they don't have to change their portfolio as a result. They, the cash goes in and out. But while those are very important for institutions who may not want to actually deal with the, deal with moving around positions, individuals should be thinking of those the same way. And I think people don't necessarily think of that when they think of, let's say, an XND as opposed to a QQQ. Mm -hmm. So let, let me uh, make it a little bit personal and be vulnerable here. So I can think of a handful of occasions where I have, say, sold a put with the hopes that that thing is expiring out of the money and collecting the premium, right? And the drawing the distinction here between an ETF and an index option is important. Say ultimately that put ends up in the money. If I have an ETF option, um, I'm going to end up long it. And in my mind, I have done this countless times. I tell myself, I'm going to trade around this long position in the underlying, this residual long position, as opposed to being uh, absolved of it had I sold mm -hmm. uh, an index option. And while it's not always going to be the case, say you have a gap between over the weekend, right? Between yeah. the Friday close settle price and Monday's open, which seems to be happening happening with greater frequency over the past few years. And all of a sudden, the management of that residual position becomes kind of an albatross, right? So that inherent discipline, if you will, of being done with yes. it at expiration is something that I appreciate. It's not for everybody, but but it's a an element that I like. Well, if you're doing if if, for example, you're doing cash secured puts. You don't mind being. You don't mind having the stock put to you. That 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 can be a feature. That could be your way of entering a position. On the other hand, if you're speculating by shorting puts, uh, that's as you say, it can be a, a huge albatross. You you didn't want to be long this, but you Correct. go in there, particularly if you've got some pin risk. If it's close, if it's you know, if you're very close to a pin, um, it can be nasty. So so let's get to number two. I interrupted number two because I really wanted to flesh out number one because I thought that was very important. I, I appreciate the the clarification and I think you you did so really well. So the last two sort of points of distinction, index options are European styled. Mm -hmm. So what's that mean? Well, there's no risk of early exercise or assignment. Yes. Um, ETF options like QQQ, any equity option is American styled. So there is the potential, which I don't want to inflate, of early assignment. Now, generally speaking, that would happen in an index product 
in an effort to collect a dividend, so ahead of a uh, the underlying going X dividend. So we're talking about a quarterly risk typically, but it's one of those things where if it happens to you once and you're responsible for a quarterly dividend that you didn't sort of bank on, uh, you're, you're probably not going to want that to happen again. The final point of distinction and one that is hopefully becoming more and more greater awareness is the tax, the generally favored tax treatment in the eyes of the IRS. Now, I am not looking to negatively impact your podcast ratings, so there's going to be no deep dive on tax <laughs> law here. But there is kind of like a, a story behind this that I think is interesting, but I'm kind of a history fan generally. So how the heck did this 1256 tax treatment for index options as opposed to equity options come to be? Please, please, explain, go back please, to the, please explain 1256 because you threw out a term there that not everyone is familiar with. So please just right. what, what is it in a nutshell? This one makes it stick. The 1256 is thank you to Dan Rostenkowski. So you got to go back to the early 80s. This guy, Dan Rostenkowski, that's got an awesome, totally Chicago name. He's a, a Chicago native, was head of the Ways and Means Committee, a very powerful position in Congress. So back then, his district encompassed these new derivative exchanges downtown Chicago. So the CME, the Board of Trade. Uh, and the CBOE. So there was this big tax provision being worked on in the early years of the Reagan administration, and Rostenkowski managed to carve out this favorable provision for broad-based index products. So what's that mean? In most situations, they would be taxed at 40% short-term rates and 60% long-term rates, no matter the holding period. Now that compares to ETF and equity options, where that rate is flipped, they are generally taxed at 60% short-term, which is the higher rate, and 40% long-term if held for less than one year. Now, maybe that doesn't sound meaningful, but I can tell you from lived experience that it matters. So anecdotally, I grew up in a kind of old-fashioned Irish Catholic household. It was really typical to have a picture of like John F. Kennedy or the Pope in your home, maybe the Sacred Heart. Many of those same Irish Catholics went to work on Chicago exchanges back in the day. And when they understood the implications of those tax benefits and index products, a picture of Dan Rostenkowski in some situations <laughs> went up on the wall alongside JFK and the Pope because that's how much it mattered to some of those early uh, index options traders. So just to recap, you know, there's three basic distinctions between the two um, types of option vehicles for gaining exposure, hedging exposure to index products. There's differences that need to be understood. Um, there's differences between your Costco size that I referenced and your convenience size. And then the one last thing that I mentioned but didn't expound upon at all was that we support VolQ. VolQ is something you've written about, mm -hmm. um, and it is uh, an index. There is an index, and there's also tradable product. So the index tracks at the money, 30-day forward NASDAQ 100 volatility. So the inputs here 
are at the money NDX options that expire in roughly one month. And that output is an annualized volatility assumption. Your audience is likely familiar to some degree with the VIX index. It mm -hmm. is similar but different in, in kind of two key ways. So the, the primary one, the inputs are different in that we're using NDX options, NASDAQ 100 options, as opposed to S&P 500 options. And uh, the inputs for VOLQ are those at the money options as opposed to uh, a wide strip of options or the variance swap methodology that's employed in the case of VIX. So VOLQ, if you kind of distill it, negates the impact of index option skew on that, re on that reading, yes. on that output. Now, VOLQ, the index, could be used for information purposes. So in other words, what are NASDAQ 100 index options forecasting in terms of volatility here and now, and then put that in context. So how does it compare to history? What is that saying about the market that we're in right now? So yesterday, VOLQ was measuring right around 32. And that means that one month at the money NDX options are forecasting roughly 2% daily moves for the NASDAQ 100. Little context, you look back a couple weeks ago, that measure was in the low 20s. Back in May, when energy prices were soaring and kind of inflation concerns arguably peaked or hopefully knock on wood peaked, VOLQ was around 40. Now, that information is valuable for whatever it's worth. Intraday, I was doing some, some data wrangling for, for a piece I'll write shortly about intraday volatility for the NASDAQ 100 this year. Intraday, average intraday vol in the NASDAQ 100 has been 2.44% of spot, wow. which you have to go back to 2008 for anything comparable. We have seen persistently high volatility, and I would argue that volatility is ultimately what drives interest in Capital markets across the board, no matter the tool you use, it's the fact that prices change mm -hmm. that, and that can be beneficial. It can also be a risk. But these tools and having alternatives and in some cases, the appropriate Vega or Vol exposure yes. that you're looking to, to offset or gain exposure to if NASDAQ 100 forward volatility is your interest. You have VOLQ futures. There's spreading opportunities there. And more recently, we've introduced VOLQ options. So there's going to need to be education and growth around this. But I appreciate opportunities like this to sort of raise awareness and make it known that if there are questions about these newer tools, to please relate them to me. And I will do my job and explain how, how and why they work. Well, you know what? I I just kind of looked at the time now, and I realize we're we're over budget, which means we've we've been having a great conversation. I, I hope the listeners agree. Um, the by the way, just going back to the tax thing, we don't offer tax advice. Neither neither Nasdaq nor Interactive Never. Brokers does. Um, but uh, I, I and also the second part of that is. Never underestimate the power of Chicago machine politics. <laughs> but um, 
I think we're going to have to wrap it up here because because I I can't you know I'm looking at the time and realize we we blew through we blew through the the normal ending time of one of these podcasts. So I'm going to say here I'm just going to thank my guest Kevin Davitt who's been a wonderful wonderful speaker. Um, I've learned a lot. You know, he, here's the thing I I've been doing dealing with this stuff for decades now, but the way that it was portrayed in terms of you know here's the I know those are the differences, but one, two, three, you're laying it out nicely for everybody. This is this is why you should be following his work and getting the clarity that comes from someone who really knows how to um, educate about the pros and cons and use cases of options. And for that, I really thank you for being my guest here today. Well, um, thank you. That means a lot coming from you. I genuinely appreciate the opportunity. So I'm gonna wrap it up here. Uh, I'm gonna thank my guest, Kevin Davitt, once again for for joining us um, from NASDAQ. And once again, thank you very much. This has been IBKR Podcasts, and uh, we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at ibkrpodcasts.com. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education material, such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, financial and economic commentary at tradersinsight.news, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. Options involve risk and are not suitable for all investors. For more information, read the characteristics and risks of standardized options, or ODD, which may be accessed through the link found in the show's notes or podcast description page. Multiple-like strategies, including spreads, will incur multiple transaction costs. Any discussion or mention of an ETF is not to be construed as recommendation, promotion, or solicitation. All investors should review and consider associated investment risks, charges, and expenses of the investment company or fund prior to investing. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, as necessary, seek professional advice. The information in this podcast does not constitute tax advice and cannot be used by the recipient or any other taxpayer to avoid penalties under any federal, state, local, or other tax statutes or regulations or to resolve any tax issue. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, as necessary, seek professional advice.